Hello, and welcome to How to Launch an Industry, brought to you by Marku and Aurora. We have so much to talk about on today's show, but first, I'd like to introduce some very special guests. We're so pleased to be able to host Dr. David Nichols. Dr. Nichols is the founder of the Hefter Research Institute and an adjunct professor of chemical biology and medicinal chemistry at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. He is also a distinguished professor of medicinal chemistry and molecular pharmacology emeritus at Purdue University, where he was previously the Robert C. and Charlotte P. Anderson Distinguished Chair in Pharmacology. To put it more directly, Dr. Nichols is a true pioneer in the field of psychedelic science, and he also appropriately holds the title of wizard in the Roth Lab at UNC Chapel Hill. Dr. Nichols, thank you so much for joining the show. Happy to be here. Next, I would like to introduce Dr. Jackie Von Somm. She is a co-founder and CSO of Silera, and we are lucky to have her on our cast here at HLI. Jackie, welcome to the show. Happy to be here again. And last but hardly least, a man you all know well, my favorite pharmacologist and business partner, Dr. Jehan Marku. Hey, everybody. So for the show today, we have three topics, and we could easily talk about each of them for hours on end. We won't do that, but let me just give you a preview. For the game, we'll be looking at famous public figures and how they've described their experience with psychedelic substances. In our pop literature section, we will be talking about the incredible legacy of how psychedelics research has evolved over the last century and expanded as of late. And so we'll be looking at some some landmark uh, items on that historical timeline. And finally, in rapid-fire science, we will look at a recent human neuroimaging study that is reported as the most comprehensive view of the acute brain action of psychedelics to date. So hopefully that's not too much sensory overload, listener, but we'll be right back to get into it after a short break. Welcome back. We'll be getting into our game now. So for the game today, uh, I've compiled some quotes from famous figures, and these quotes are about particular substances, psychedelic substances. So panelists, um, I've provided you with the um, list of substances that these quotes might be about, as well as the list of people. And then I will read the quote and everyone will get a chance to uh, guess both the substance and the person. We'll go around Robin and we will see who gets the most points. So for the listener, the options for the substances are MDMA, cannabis, LSD, and DMT. The people are Mike Tyson, Steve Jobs, and Shulgin and John Lennon. So let's get into it. The first quote is, It was the main thing that promoted nonviolence amongst the youth 
because as soon as they have it, first of all, you have to laugh at your first experience. There's nothing else you do but laugh. And then when you've got over that, you realize that people aren't laughing at you, but with you. It's a community thing and nothing would ever stop it. Nothing on earth is going to stop it. The only thing to do is to find out how to use it for good or for best. All right, who wants to take a stab? There's only four drugs to guess from and only four people. Yeah, so we have like a 10% chance of guessing correctly. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So let's see, drugs that make you laugh. Um, Let's see, cannabis, Mm -hmm. I'd say. DMT, I don't know if it really makes you laugh. LSD, maybe, right? Cannabis, LSD, make uh, LSD is not really cannabis. I think it's a cannabis. I, I'm gonna, yeah. I mean, in honor, I mean, April twentieth was was fairly recently, so I'm gonna say cannabis. Um, you know, Mike Tyson is eloquent on the mic, but not that eloquent. Um, that sounds like nothing Steve Jobs would ever say. It wasn't about productivity or bossing people around, so. Um, <laughs> Which, which leaves Ann Shulgin, who has said some cool stuff, and John Lennon, who, again, um, has talked a lot about cannabis. So I think I feel like if it was like Ann Shulgin and MDMA, then I'd be like, okay. But I, I'm gonna I'm gonna go with the bespectacled beetle who lived in New York City. I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna say uh, I'm gonna say probably John Lennon in cannabis. Um, but uh, you know, I'm, I'm, what is John Lennon smoking weed for one point, please? <laughs> <laughs> All right, who's next? I second that. Okay. Yeah, that was actually my guess. I'm. <laughs> All righty. Um, okay, we have consensus on our first quote. Let's see if we can get some controversy in our next quote. All right. Hmm. I'm. I'm telling you guys. Uh, real challenge getting good information out of the internet uh, post-chat GPT era. Um, real challenge. So I'll, I'll uh, gripe more about that if we have time later. Um, okay, so on to our next quote. I look at life differently. I look at people differently. It's almost like dying and being reborn. It's inconceivable. I tried to explain it to some people, to my wife. I don't have words to explain it. It's almost like you're dying, you're submissive, you're humble, you're vulnerable, but you're invincible still in it all. So I actually think I saw the person who said this because they said almost the exact same thing when I've been at conferences with them before. Okay. All right, Jackie, well, let us know. Who was it? Um, but I, I'm going to raise the question of if it's dmt or 5meo dmt Mm. because i believe that was mike tyson talking about 5 methoxy dmt Mm. rather than dmt but that's Mm -hmm. my guess so i don't know what that i guess i say dmt in this case but that that's my guess okay uh any other guesses i think i wasn't going to go with mike tyson until i heard the invincible (laughs) part because like uh, one of the things that was interesting to me is he talked about how that was an influence for him to get back into the ring at like 56 mm. or 60 or what, whatever barrier he's breaking in, in the sport. But it was like the, the war god spoke to him. Um, so, so I think I almost thought that might be Steve Jobs. Um, but uh, it does 
that that invincible part, that being submissive part, it sounds like something a warrior would say. <laughs> um, so I, I'm, I'm, I think I'm, I might, I might second Jackie's uh, Mike Tyson DMT. She did seem to throw around some credible stuff, but you know, I don't know about those psychedelic conferences. You know, who knows? <laughs> so, uh, Doctor Nichols, what do you think about this one? Yeah, if it was five methoxy DMT, then I would think it was Mike Tyson. But since we only have a choice of DMT, mm. uh, I don't know what he's done with DMT, but that's the one that seems the best fit for me. All righty. Um, uh, and the one that seems the worst fit um, <laughs> would probably be Cannabis and Steve Jobs. <laughs> that would probably... <laughs> okay, so... Um, all right, uh, next quote. It shows you that there's another side to the coin and you can't remember it when it wears off, but you know it. It reinforces my sense of what was important, creating great things instead of making money, putting things back into the stream of history and of human consciousness as much as I could. That sounds like someone who would say, I want all my music and pictures in this phone. You make it happen. I'm going to sit over here. Uh, that sounds like something, a Steve Jobian type thing. Um, creation, you know, I don't know about that money thing. That throws me off. So I got to think about it a little more. But, uh, you know, like I, you know, it, it could be more than one person. You know, Nigam didn't tell us it's only one for one. So that could be Mike Tyson, you know, for all they, we know. They also, yeah, it's like these could all be about LSD too. <laughs> mm. <laughs> so. That was actually an issue. Turns out there's way more LSD quotes on the internet than any other psychedelic drug, if you go looking. Hmm. Well, it is associated with creativity and, and realizing what's important. So that's um, that might make sense. All righty. Can we get a formal guess from the crew? LSD is my guess drug-wise. Okay. Based on what was said. I don't know if David has any other opinions, yeah. but I would say LSD. But. LSD and maybe Steve Jobs. What is Steve Jobs microdosing at the office for? One <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, any further opinions? I'm good with that one. All righty. Okay. And here's the last one. This one's super short. It's penicillin for the soul. <laughs> and Shogun. Uh. MDMA. Hmm. Rather authoritatively, Dr. Nichols. Um, I feel like I want that to be about cannabis. Wow. I mean, I almost wanted to say a wrong guess just to be controversial, but it'll be hard to sway David Nichols' authority on this. So. No, I um, actually kind of, it's kind of funny. I meant to start with. Uh, I meant to start with the penicillin for the soul one because I thought it would be easy. But today I learned that I gave my contestants too, too many clues in the game. So um, <laughs> I'm, I'm familiar with Novocaine for the soul, but that's probably different than penicillin. I mean, my doctor prescribed both to me. So, um, <laughs> uh, but <laughs> so, so Novocaine for the soul, I think, is something else. Um, maybe an opioid. Uh, let's see. So I would think. Um, yeah, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna ride the gravy train on that one. MDMA and Shulgin, we haven't uh, for one point. I think that's the guess. Yeah, I think we've all been. 
I know you want some of this controversy between us, but I feel like we all just agree are agreeable right now. But yeah, I'm gonna stick. We're like, yeah, that person smokes so weed. I- <laughs> yep, that person does LSD. Yep, that person does DMT. So, um- <laughs> like that's amazing. Like we could hear a quote and we're like, yeah, that guy's high on I something. Will, I will tell you. So here's <laughs> what I'm going to do on the fly here. So I thought about doing a tiebreaker, but instead of so instead of doing a tiebreaker, really what I wanted was a little controversy. But luckily, one of our quote givers already created some controversy. So I'm just going to close out the game segment with uh, a quote. Well, first, let me let me tell you guys the results. So uh, turns out that our panelists are extremely good at this game and they were correct in every count. Booyah. The first quote about um, laughing, nonviolence. It was John Lennon, and it was about cannabis. The uh, quote about being reborn, it was Mike Tyson. And I think you guys are right. I think it was 5-MEO. Um, he was into the toad. He was really into the toad. <laughs> I feel like I already said this, but um, internet is getting really hard to get information out of that hasn't been chewed up by six AIs before my internal system tries to <laughs> perceive it. That's also it, so. like a, it's such a classic misconception. I hear it all the time of people saying DMT because they just don't realize that 5-methoxy DMT is a very different molecule from an experiential perspective and they'll just say DMT. So even on the internet, I'm sure it's written that way all over. And speaking of misconceptions, it's like this, I, I know I'm kind of going off off topic here, but I, I really am kind of annoyed at the garbage dump that inhibited me from finding cool quotes in an efficient fashion. And um, they would, it's so bad that this AI generated content that there was literally a quote and it says, quote about psilocybin mushrooms by Michael Pollan, author of How to Change Your Mind. And in the quote, the quote was, I am a series of molecules with all the other molecules. I no longer am Paul Stamets. Well, that's true. He isn't. <laughs> but he never, it was just. Maybe he became him for a brief <laughs> period of time. Like under oh, the, like, like, I mean. So, um. Anyways, to continue our journey, uh, yeah, so Steve Jobs, um, uh, yes, said this thing about, you know, making products and it's not all about money. But then, Jayhan, I had the same catch up. I was like, did he really say that about money? Because that's not how it seems now. And then, yeah, um, he would have had to be under the influence of something because he seemed very <laughs> much about money. But. And I'm going to loop back with uh, Steve Jobs shortly. But then, um, of course, uh, there's really no ambiguity. Um, this is a very iconic quote from Ann Shulgin um, that MDMA is penicillin for the soul. So um, here's my little bit of controversy before we go on to the next segment. So as I was looking for these quotes, I found this kind of funny one from Steve Jobs. Here's a real quote. Um, Bill Gates would be a broader guy if he had dropped acid once or gone off to an ashram when he was younger. Steve Jobs, 2011. There we go. That's mm, our contract. That's, <laughs> that's an insult that really burns at a man's soul. You know, it just, <laughs> it's like, wow, this guy was, uh, I don't know. He really did not like, uh, did not like Bill Gates. So, all right. Well, thank you, uh, panelists, uh, for just obliterating my game. Full marks for everybody. And, uh, thank you listener for playing along at home. And we will be right back after a short message, um, for our pop science segment. Thank you.
If you're interested in the science of psychedelic therapeutics, don't miss the Psychedelic Therapeutics and Drug Development Conference taking place in San Francisco on May 15th and 16th. The conference will bring together the world's leading researchers in academia, industry, nonprofit, and government sectors to discuss challenges and opportunities facing those engaged in the research and development of psychedelics for various health conditions. So check out psychedelics-conference.com for all the information and to register. And we're back. Our topic for today's pop science segment is a very interesting resource from a website called Psychedelic Science Review. And they have there a timeline of psychedelic events, which reading that out loud is kind of an ambiguous sentence. But um, I guess these are major historical research events is more what we're interested here. So um, I do have to give them credit. Uh, I think it's broken down rather well into waves of psychedelic events, um, which I think, uh, you know, our psychonauts out there may identify with. So, uh, you know, we've heard this term renaissance. We actually critiqued that word uh, renaissance uh, on the show recently and some of the implications it can have psychedelics renaissance. Um, So I think this wave thing is palatable. Um, So they defined it as the first wave being from ancient times up to uh, the year um, 1900. The second wave being from 1900 to 1990. And the third wave is from 1990 to present. So today we'll be focusing largely on the third wave. And uh, I'd like to kick it off um, by um, hearing from Dr. Nichols. Uh, You shared with us about uh, recently about your extensive history in synthesizing psychedelic compounds for research purposes. And you were absolutely instrumental in providing API for many landmark research initiatives. So you shared with us um, on a call recently some things like providing MDMA for MAPS, providing DMT for uh, Dr. Rick Strassman's first human studies uh, that were published, uh, psilocybin for Johns Hopkins studies, and of course, uh, API for the Hefter Institute, which you founded. Um, So it seems like... uh, sourcing of psychedelic APIs is getting a little more normalized in the research field now, but uh, of course it wasn't always that way. Uh, can you share with us a little bit about what it was like to be producing those compounds um, so long ago? So I was at Purdue University and it's in the Midwest, as you know, and nobody in the department really, I would say, appreciated any, in any detail what I was doing psychedelics. Um, so I was, I used to tell people that I was flying under the radar. Anyway, I went to um, Esalen. There were a couple meetings at Esalen, one in the fall of 84 and one in the spring of 85. that were largely focused on how to make MDMA legal or how to prevent it from becoming criminalized. And at those meetings, I met Rick Doblin. He was a college student at New College in Florida. Um, a very kind of animated guy, 
who was convinced he was going to make MDMA into a prescription drug. And I thought it was kind of impossible at that point in time because it was con- almost a controlled substance. I think they didn't actually schedule it until 86. But I thought this guy doesn't know anything. He's a, a hippie at New College. Um, he needs to get a PhD and do something productive. I actually told him to go to graduate school and get a PhD. I don't know whether he, he did that. I don't know whether it was because of me or not. But anyway, he did that. But um, we met, I think, in the spring of 85 was where we had most of our discussions. And then um, he wanted to, he, he started looking at the regulatory process for making MDMA into a drug. And you need, first of all, preclinical toxicology and assessment of adverse effects and so forth. So he needed to synthesize or he needed a big batch of MDMA that was highly pure. And he started checking around and couldn't find anybody that would make it. He met me, he says, well, you're a medicinal chemist. Could you do it? I said, well, I don't know anything about the DEA regulations, but you know, it's a simple synthesis. So he put me in touch with a, a chemist at the Food and Drug Administration. who said, well, here's what you have to do. It has to be a lab. Your lab has to be all clean. You have to describe the lab. You have to describe um, the working the conditions in the lab. You have to provide a curriculum vitae so we know who you are. Um, and you need to have uh, analyses and batch numbers for all the starting materials you use. Basically, highly uh, detailed. So, okay, that sounds reasonable. And so, actually, Sasha gave me his recipe for making MDMA. Um, instead of using cyanoborhydride or something like that, he used squares of commercial aluminum foil that had been amalgamated in mercuric chloride, I think. So, and that was a very good synthesis. So I talked to him about it. And of course, I knew of MDMA from Sasha's work and my work from years earlier. So um, I ordered the starting materials and uh, I think we we purchased about a total of about $4,000 worth of starting materials and some big glassware and so forth plus cost for analysis, the whole thing. So the actual cost of materials was fourth, about, about $4,000. We ended up making uh, 1.4 kilograms of MDMA hydrochloride. Um, we double distilled the free base, converted it to a hydrochloride. Re- everything was recrystallized from USP, you know, isopropanol, ethyl acetate, et cetera. And so I had, and I put into these brown bottles, 250 grams each, and then I sealed them, dipped them in melted paraffin so it would seal them so no moisture could get in them. So I sent off the first bottle to the toxicology company that Rick wanted it sent to. It had 250 grams in it. Um, shortly thereafter, Rick said, that's all they need. They don't need any more. Well, of course, if you knew anything about preclinical toxicology, 250 grams would be a lot. Um, so they did two species, rats and dogs. Um, and that's what got him started. Um, I was at a meeting in Prague a, a few years ago, and we were supposed to get up at the end of the meeting. Um, Rita was the one who was kind of the MC or whatever, and she wanted us all to get up and talk about what we learned at the meeting. So it was Bill Richards, me, Rick Doblin, I think Amanda Fielding. And so I told Rita, I said, I didn't learn anything at this meeting. I mean, it was good to cool, hang out with all these people, but, you know, and see what's going on. But it was really nothing new. Can we just talk about in general? She said, oh, yeah, that'll work. So we all talked about in general. And Bill Richards talked about his first experience. Henry and Rick Doblin talked about um, his experience with uh, different substances. 
And Amanda talked about, you know, doing her self-trepanning, trepanning, cutting a hole in her skull and for to show that LSD increased cerebral perfusion, which was complete nonsense. But anyway, and so then I said to the crowd, and this was after the so-called Renaissance had started, I said, you're all very lucky to be here today, and I'll tell you why. I, I made MDMA for Rick Dalvin back in 1985, which started sort of the so-called renaissance, at least in clinical studies. And I said, I was just talking to Rick, and he told me that he needed to get a kilogram of GMP-grade MDMA. GMP is good manufacturing practices. It's a special classification for drugs that go in humans. And he said it cost him about $400,000. And so I said, and I'll tell you all that Rick Dobbin couldn't do his clinical studies without work from my lab because we made him over a kilogram of highly pure MDMA for $4,000 where the labor was pro bono. And I said, he just told me that he bought a kilogram for $400,000. And at the time where I made it for him, he could barely afford the $4,000. So $400,000. If he'd been faced with that from the very beginning and no one would make it, would have stopped Max maps in their tracks. Hmm. And then I was also at that meeting. I met Rick Strassman. He had written a paper about um, adverse effects of LSD or of psychedelics and published it in, I think, 84. So I was aware of him, but I never met him, didn't really know much about him. So he and I spent some time together because we were really the only two academics there. I was a professor of medicinal chemistry. He was a professor of psychiatry, but everybody else there was a sort of pseudo shaman, um, you know, whatever, uh, you know, the sort of psychedelic mainstream, if you, I mean, Stan Groff and Ralph Metzner and the usual suspects were all there. So Rick and I hung out because we were both academics and we're talking about the fact that nobody's doing any clinical research. And he was bemoaning the fact, and hey, nobody's doing anything. I said, well, you could do it. I said, you're a professor of psychiatry at a medical school. You could do it if you want to do it. Really? You think so? And I said, sure. The problem is nobody's doing it. They've all been burned. They're afraid to do it. It's too expensive. There's too many regulations. So we were. he went back, and we sort of worked back and forth. We met with a, a number of people. Um, he talked to the head of his department who had come there recently, who was very good at designing clinical protocols. So he got back in touch with me and said, so what if I get everything approved? I get the protocol, I get the money and everything, but nobody will make the DMT for me. I said, well, I just made a bunch of MDMA for Rick Dobbin. I'm sure DMT is a simple synthesis. I'm sure I could do that too. So just let me know. So eventually it came to that. He had the protocol approved. He had all the approvals. He had to schedule one license. So then he contacted me and said, I can't find anybody that will make DMT that could be administered intravenously. Could you make that? So I made, I think, 20 grams or so of DMT fumarate, high purity stuff. We did all the, we did all the FDA pedigree on it, et cetera. So that got him started. Um, and uh, we communicated some, and then he did a study. And then um, I started the Hefter Institute in 1993 because there were no clinical studies. And I had told people, um, you know, you could do clinical studies, you just won't get any funding for it. But everybody was so afraid of getting involved in the field that they were kind of didn't want to do it. Anyway, Bob Jesse went to Roland Griffiths at Johns Hopkins, um, I think probably early 2000s. And they proposed a study in normals to see whether it could be a follow-up to the Good Friday experiment. 
see what happened if we gave psilocybin to healthy volunteers. And so then um, Roland or Bob Jesse, I can't remember who, contacted me and said, could you make psilocybin? It turns out that Rick Doblin had wanted me to make psilocybin for his follow, a follow-up study to his DMT study. And I said, yeah, I think we can do it. And when I got into it, it turns out the way Hoffman had made psilocybin in the beginning, he used a reagent called uh, dibenzophosphorochloride. And that's a very unstable reagent. And bottles of neat, that neat reagent were known to have spontaneously exploded. So my technician who was doing a lot of the legwork came and said, let me show you this quote here, uh, spontaneous detonation. I said, no, we're not going to use that reagent. <laughs> and nobody really sold it. They had a like 5% solution in benzene you could buy. But anyway, so we tried to find a new way to make it. Um, we worked for a long time. Rick Strassman got really pissed off at me because we didn't produce it. And I kept telling him, Rick, I said, we're trying to find a better way to make it. We can't make it by the published method because it's just too dangerous. He really got angry at me and stayed angry for a long time, in fact. But we had done a bunch of background work to find alternate ways to make it. So then, um, by then, we knew a way that we could make it. So I told Bob and Roland, yeah, we can make, we can make it. We've got a way to make it. So we invented a reagent that we used to make, I think, about four grams of psilocybin. That's what he used to make the psilocybin for his study published in 2006, um, so, you know, psilocybin in healthy people, which really was kind of a landmark study. And then... Um, then other people made psilocybin for uh, Charlie Grobe. He got it from a place in Boston and then also New York University. But Roland came back and said, can you make a lot of us, a lot of for us, for our studies? So basically using a different method that we had developed, we made about 20 grams for him. And that's what they've used for most of their studies. Uh, all the phase one and phase two was that 20 gram batch of psilocybin that we made. So, Really, I'm not sure where these drugs would have come from if we hadn't made them in my lab because nobody wanted to touch them, especially when they were controlled substances like DMT and psilocybin. MDMA wasn't controlled substance when we first made it, but while we made it, once we had it, they scheduled it, so I had to keep it all locked up in my, you know, my cabinet in my office. But anyway, so when I see about this, everybody wonders how this renaissance got started. There were a lot of motivated people, but you know, if you can't get your hand on the goods, you can't do anything. So that's kind of that story. Well, thank you for sharing. That's, um, it's just fundamental, right? It's, um, just to the root of the thing. How did, I just love what you said. How did, how did the Renaissance start? How did the third wave, how did any of these waves start? Um, so, and I think, um, I think also for me personally, that's why I was interested in getting into chemistry and that's why I pursued chemistry at Purdue and um because that's to me it's the root of so many things and you can have so much uh influence downstream with one valuable molecule or one valuable synthesis um how come you didn't work for me no so actually (laughs) wow oh man if we could just roll the clock back i would so be there so i'll tell you dr nichols here's here's a story here's why is because i believe um you uh, retired from Purdue in 2011, 2012. Yeah. yeah. So um, I was in the uh, the um, Pulse program. You might remember. Yeah, uh, sure. 
So I, I had the option to go into MCMP and I actually rotated an MCMP in a protein folding lab. And um, all my uh, all my little grad school friends uh, who were interested in, uh, you know, fringe things, all of them in 2011, I'm going to apply to Nichols Lab. I'm going to apply to Nichols Lab. I'm going to apply to Nichols Lab. And then when it was announced that you were retiring, it was just like, just sad face from all my little friends, you know? So, um, maybe, maybe that's why, but, um, anyways, uh, I'm super happy to just be here with you now and, um, very appreciative of, um, just everything that, that you've, uh, done for the field as you were sharing. And then also I think for Purdue too, I think that was meaningful. Um, just, uh, even till now, uh, when you say Purdue, people say, you know, Oh, Nichols was at Purdue. And it's like, yeah. Yeah. Actually, you know, there's a psychoactive drug archive at Purdue it was set up by Betsy Gordon. She put the money in mm. and then I worked with her. Stan Groff was an advisor for a while. So there is a huge trove of psychedelic literature, mm. um, past literature, books, writing from some of the pioneers in the psychoactive drug archives. Mm. And people, if they go to Purdue, can, there's a link then you can go in. And so there's a lot of research that people have done digging out those old papers. Wow. What was that called again? The, psycho- uh, the, the Psychoactive Drug Archives. And that's Union. digitally available? Yeah. Well, some some of it, a lot of it's been digitized. Okay. Follow-up question. Is the psilocybin still locked in your cabinet <laughs> or? No, I took it. I took it on myself. <laughs> <laughs> no, I had, when you, when you retire from a place, if you have a Schedule 1 license, you have to give everything. You have to turn everything in or send it to somebody. My son is doing research in this field, so I sent some things to him. He had a, he had a DEA license by then. There's a form 222 you have to use to transfer. Mm-hmm. So I transferred a lot to him. Some of it I just had to scrap. It runs it down, run, run it down the drain. Now, this is uh, really an interesting case of uh, family estate planning, passing on your Schedule One academic psychedelic molecules to your son, right? <laughs> <laughs> I so. tell people that when they learn he's been in the field about 25 years, said we're going to start the Nichols Serotonin Dynasty. Yeah, yeah. Does uh does he does yours? Do you have grandkids? Yeah. All right. Well, there you go. The dynasty <laughs> is o- well. There's only one granddaughter who might be interested in chemistry, but it's too early. She's in the ninth grade. It's too early to know. Okay. But that would be cool. Yeah. If yeah. she went into chemistry. Well, speaking of um, women in chemistry and psychedelic molecules, uh, Jackie, I'm so curious <laughs> to get uh, your uh, thoughts on this timeline. Um, I mean, so you you work with um, psychedelic compounds. Um, what 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 are your what are your thoughts? What did you get from this? So, I thought it was interesting that it started out right away with things in Florida. So I'm also. A Floridian. I'm from here. I have. I saw how many times in there they were talking about the Florida Mycology Research mm. Center. They talked about some of the other things that happened with psilocybin um, and mushrooms in Florida, which I thought was funny. That was sort of the start of their timeline. But I also noticed throughout looking that it's really tryptamine and psilocybin heavy when you're looking at a lot of the different points that they talk about in the timeline. Um, they it, they don't really seem to emphasize even you know some of David Nichols' work of the different ergoline alkaloids, other types of even LSD analogs, other things that happened in the 90s. I mean, I think some of it happened earlier as well, but I was in, it was interesting that they really focused in a lot on 
psilocybin analogs and a lot of the different derivatives that have happened just in the last maybe five to 10 years. Um, they also seem to focus in on, there was, there's a lot around the crystal structures mm. that have happened with the different derivatives from psilocybin mushroom species, as well as, which is natural products, which is great. I have a natural products chemistry background myself, but I just thought it was interesting that some of the, I think some of the focus of the timeline really missed out on a few other key things that um, also happened if they're do, talking about it as psychedelics in general, not necessarily focusing in on psilocybin and tryptamine. So that was sort of my takeaway. I really appreciate what they put together. It takes a lot of effort to, you know, dig up all those things, especially in the last 20 to 30 years when you did have this just skyrocketing event of all of these new discoveries, publications. I mean, it's sometimes hard to really keep up with. So it's easier to just kind of look for press releases and what who's published <laughs> what rather than actually really diving into what others have done even uh, longer ago. But no, I mean, I appreciate the anywhere you can go and start to really see what's happened in a, in a specific field, especially one like this, that obviously all of us are really interested in. Um, it's always nice to have. I wrote a review on the uh, history of psychedelics and psychiatry that went all the way back sort of to, you know, the early 1900s. And yeah. um, you're right. Mescaline, of course, was first identified by Arthur Hefter. That's why we named the Hefter Institute after Arthur Hefter, because he had a PhD in chemistry, a PhD in pharmacology, and an MD. And he was like the most famous public health expert in Germany at the turn of the century. He invent, he uh, discovered the uh, hair test for arsenic. And I didn't know the significance of that, but arsenic was so commonly available that if you wanted, if you had a wife you didn't like, or if the wife had a husband she didn't like, you could get some arsenic at the store and put it in their drink. So there were a lot of people that were poisoned with arsenic. Wow. He even made... Um, a wallpaper that had a green pig, a pigment that was an arsenic derivative and it would flake off. And if you lived in a room where this wallpaper was, you could come down with arsenic poisoning. So Hefter yeah. came up with the hair test for, for arsenic, but then mescaline was synthesized in 1919 by Speth. And then that's the one most of the early attention was focused on. You see a lot of the early papers where they gave volunteers mescaline. Um, and then of course, then you have LSD, the Hefter Institute, the studies that we funded focused on psilocybin because Charlie Grove was going to do a study with MDMA and dying patients, end-of-life patients, and Rick Dobbin was going to sponsor it. But Charlie came to us, he was on the Hefter board by then, and he said, I just don't feel comfortable giving mescaline or giving um, MDMA to sick people because it raises their blood pressure, stimulates their heart. You know, I just, is there something else we could use? And so we said, well, what are the possibilities? Well, LSD, but we thought if we started using LSD back in 1990s, whatever, that it would create a media feeding frenzy. And I think it would have. Mm. And plus it was the long acting, 10 hours or so, which meant if you did a clinical study, the patients would have to be hospitalized overnight. Um, then we talked about mescaline, which had, you know, everyone knew mescaline was fairly non-toxic, but it's also not very potent. And for many people, when they take it, they get nauseous or actually vomit. And it also lasts 10 to 12 hours, very long acting. So once again, you have a drug that you're going to have to keep people in the clinic overnight. And plus, a lot of them are going to feel sick. And they're already sick if they're getting chemotherapy, things like that. So then psilocybin, which had been used worldwide for millennia. And of course, in the early, the Good Friday experiment, there, there was psilocybin. 
So we thought, let's use that. It only lasts four to six hours. Nobody knows what it is. I used to fly airplanes when we in an airplane, and I would tell somebody what I was doing, and I say, yeah, we're doing sponsoring clinical studies with uh, psychedelics, you know, LSD and psilocybin. He said he was a psychiatrist, and he looked at me with this baffled look in his face and said, "You mean they actually gave those drugs to humans?" So, like, medical schools don't give any information about psychedelics nowadays, and he didn't know anything about it. So it was kind of funny. And nobody knew what psilocybin was. When I would tell people we're working with psilocybin, they go, what's psilocybin? I said, did you ever hear of magic mushrooms? Oh, yeah, shrooms. We ate those back in college. I said, well, that's the active ingredient in mushrooms. So, but nobody knew what psilocybin was. Now almost everybody knows what psilocybin is. To, to clarify about that story, you were flying the plane while telling no, the flying guy. in a plane. Oh, no. flying in. Oh, for some reason, I thought yeah. like you were flying the plane and telling the guy that he was like concerned a, for his safety. Yeah, I was sitting next to a psychiatrist. I see, was, I see, I see. After I told him I was researching psychedelics, he was probably still concerned for his safety. I do. <laughs> I will say uh, it, yeah, it's... Anyone want to change seats with me? <laughs> <laughs> it's been a, a huge uh, a relief, you know, living in California and, you know... Uh, you know, Michael Pollan's on Netflix and all this stuff. It's a huge relief. Like, I feel like I used to sit on a plane, even in 2017, 2018, 2019, and people would ask me, oh, hey, what do you do? And I'd be like, uh, nothing. Don't ask, you know, <laughs> like, and it's not because it's doing anything wrong. It's just because uh, the it's it's uh, stigma, you know. So anyways, I do. um uh, I do want to ask Jayhan um, about the timeline. So, uh, you know, there's a. Uh, one thing I noticed was there was a huge, um, it's like a big acceleration, right? Like if we had graphed this and we've all seen the graphs of the, uh, you know, massive, uh, increase in publications. So, you know, Jayhan, uh, if I've ever met a uh, PubMed worm, it's you. And so my question <laughs> for you is, is this productive? Is it dilutive? Is it science? Is it hype? What is it? Can, can you tell, can you give us a, a little critical, uh, uh, percent, you know, um, uh, what do you think? Well, gang, as we can tell, this is in the non-peer-reviewed section of the show, so it's it's not a peer-reviewed article. Doesn't mean it's not science, but it's it's. I think it could benefit from some peer review. Um, as as a you know twenty-year cannabinoid researcher, it's great to see little details about cannabinoids just tucked in there among some of the other things. But what is really interesting to me is. It's an interesting snapshot because most of us think about, at least I do, when I think of psychedelics, got really big, then got banned. Uh, but what's weird is it's not that long ago that lots of countries were banning it just as this research was coming out. So which came first, the ban or the initiation of the clinical trials? And so I thought that was kind of interesting to see. Like, you know, if you start at the beginning of the timeline, it's like bad news, bad news, bad news. And then it's like all these breakthroughs, all this information. Um, I think that there could be, you know, it's it's a, it's an amazing undertaking, as Jackie said, and it's really cool to see all this stuff. But it could benefit a little bit more. It does have like people who passed away. I think like Ross Doss and Timothy Leary, and it's like, but they're nowhere else on the timeline, nor is their work really prominent. So it's hard to know like what some of this means. Mm. Um, and I think overall, some of the clarification could be helpful. Like psilocybin didn't get approval. Comp 360 got approval, which is a form of psilocybin. You know, you don't want to split hairs, but, you know, psilocybin schedule one drug. If it has a compass label logo on it, it's a different, you know, classification, maybe. So I think there still is some confusion there about 
for me at least like you know about some of the terminology we use and i think we talked about today 5-MeO DMT DMT psilocybin or polymorphic standardized you know formulated psilocybin like the you know or, or is it a purified synthetic product so i think some of those details the resolution of the timeline i would love to see them keep working on it adding to it and just increase the resolution uh, for me, for a big nerd who likes <laughs> some of these details and specificities, but uh, yeah, I think it's, it's uh, timelines are great. Um, and I like to see what they what they do with it. Um, but again, it is really remarkable to see sort of this intolerance um, and restrictions on psychedelic products, while at the same time, you know, we're seeing you know, Fimeo DMT is a Schedule One drug in 2011, but yet there's all this stuff coming about other drugs for PTSD and the effects on the human brain and um, things like that. So it, it's it's really interesting to see. So what really happened was the drug war, Nixon's drug war in 1970, and uh, of course we know it wasn't because of the drugs. John Ehrlichman has said we knew the drugs weren't dangerous, but all the hippies were smoking dope and taking acid. And they were protesting the Vietnam War and really pissing Nixon off. So they thought, you know, if we make these illegal, then we can arrest them for breaking the law and they'll get felonies. They won't be able to vote and that'll shut down. And so then what do you do? You go to the International Commission, International Commissions, and you say, if you want any foreign aid from us, you're going to have to sign on to agree to make these all illegal. So countries like Egypt, where people used hashish regularly, right? They had to make it illegal. Well, if you go to Egypt, and you get caught using hashish and you're Egyptian, nothing happens. But if you're an American and you get caught with it, you get thrown in jail to show the United States, like, we're, you know, see, we're following the laws. That was a big problem because um, nobody wanted to mess with these. And in academics, there, still, there's almost no funding for research. So nobody would get into it. I used to tell people, that's why, why I told Rick Strassman, I said, you can do it. It's just nobody that's got credentials has done it. The, a lot of the early work was done by psychologists who had no training in clinics. They gave it without controls. They didn't have placebo controls. They just were giving it out willy-nilly. You could write to Sandoz. Uh, Al Hubbard wrote to Sandoz. He was, a, he was a nobody, if you know the story of Captain Tripps. He wrote to Sandoz and said, you know, send me a 1,000 doses of LSD or 10,000, whatever. They sent it to him. No questions asked. They had, that was back, you know, before all the drug wars started. So... I think after we started in 1993, we raised money from philanthropists. I think we raised a total of about $10 million over all the years from 93 till now. And we went to people to, and said, like, you know, we'll fund, you can't get government funding, but if you write a protocol to do this, then we'll fund it. We'll give you support. So we funded a lot of those studies that got the so-called renaissance started. So besides making the drugs for people, I think the Hefter Institute played a key role in getting things started. Because once we did some key studies, well, Charlie Grobe gave uh, psilocybin to cancer patients, but he only gave, he only had 11 patients. And the dose he gave was too low. It was like 20 milligrams. And he should have given 25 or 30. So he got six months significance, I think, on anxiety, but he didn't give a large enough dose. But he had a lot of trouble getting his protocol approved. Then once we get that approved, then you went to the next lab that wanted to do something, say Johns Hopkins, the smoking cessation study. You had a boilerplate. You could say, well, this was approved at uh, UCLA. So they, once it got started, you could follow the previous applications just using this boilerplate. So that kind of get things rolling. So it was really like any kind of 
almost like a new field, a new paradigm shift, I've called it, where whenever you see that happen, everybody goes in to see what they can do and how far they can push the technology. But, you know, there are a couple of key events. I think one was the, you know, founding of Hefter and putting money into some of the early clinical studies. And then the clinical studies at Johns Hopkins and New York University in 2016 were large enough to make, you know, a dent in the current awareness of what was going on with psychedelics. But um, it, it has been interesting. And I started, I have a folder where I save things related to psychedelics. I can't even keep up with it anymore. <laughs> um, when I started that folder, you know, I'd put one in a year or two in a year and all. And now it's like one or two a week. It's, it's really incredible. To that point, one last thing I would just add, you know, turning me on to the psychoactive book library is just phenomenal. We have to put this in the show notes. Um, it is it is amazing. I'd love to see a timeline of just the like the books and the publications and their topics. I mean, I think that would be really amazing to just look at. Um, you know, and people have done those like publication studies for CBD and other things. It'd be great to see that for psilocybin to see those inflection points. Like, was it you know, what caused, what were some of the, because in, in, in cannabis research, the inflection points for research are very clear with discovering receptors and then kaboom. Um, but it'd be interesting to just kind of investigate that more. But thank you. Thank you, David. That was fascinating stuff. I guess it's, I'm biased again as sort of the natural product side, but I feel like there's been so many discoveries of different molecules that are so similar to tryptamines, you know, ergolines, mescalines, all these, all these different types of compound classes that come from different sources in nature than the classic ones you might think of. And it would just be really nice to see a little bit more of a tribute to different people finding these molecules in nature, just because I know of a ton of different tryptamine derivatives that have been found in the marine organisms and in other places. It's just, it'd be really neat to see a little bit more of that as well, seeing, oh, this was discovered in this year and this was discovered. And because there's a lot of that that's been done in the last 30 years, too. So that would be my one little uh, natural products hat moment when I look through those things. <laughs> but well, I will take it uh, under uh, my realm of responsibility to <laughs> write a uh, lengthy. No, I'll write a short email to the. Um, folks who put this timeline together and if they like our recommendations we'll see what happens so um well speaking of uh studies uh we will take a short break and we'll be back with rapid fire science where we dig in on a brand new uh peer-reviewed study Hello, this is Jehan Marku. If you're looking for life sciences consulting in cannabis and psychedelics, look no further than Marku and Aurora. At our firm, we provide expert services from experimental design to technical project management and investor due diligence. If it has to do with the fundamentals and novel drug areas, we're your go-to. Reach out to us at marku-aurora.com to schedule a discovery call today. Remember that the application of scientific approaches and properly gathered data can give you an edge towards reaching your goal. Now it's time to delve into some very cutting edge research that just came out last month. The article is titled, 
Human Brain Effects of DMT Assessed by EEG FMRI. This article was published open access in PNAS uh, by some rather prominent psychedelics researchers, including Dr. Robin Carhart-Harris and Dr. David Nutt. So I'll give a uh, just very high-level introduction about uh, what they were looking at in this paper, and uh, then we'll jump into discussion with our panelists here to dig into some of the details. So uh, this study was done in a population of 20 humans, and they gave them intravenous uh, DMT. Uh, they also did uh, placebos separately, uh, and they tracked using simultaneously fMRI and EEG, which have different um, qualities and resolutions. So there's utility to using them uh, together to achieve a greater understanding. So this was uh, a little bit of a landmark in using them together uh, is, is what's mentioned in the paper. So in what they're doing is they're looking to monitor changes in different areas of the brain and in the interconnectedness or the lack of uh, interconnectedness between different regions of the brain. They're also overlapping all this data with the presence in the activation of serotonin molecule or excuse me, serotonin receptors um, in the different brain regions. So there is a lot of data in this paper um, that they've done a, uh, I would say a, a pretty good job of shoring it up in 12 pages. When I first saw the title, I was like, wow, this is going to be a long paper. And it, it wasn't too bad. Um, there's uh, a few other things that I thought were fun. Um, uh, one is that their kind of conclusion is they're saying that this will be uh, a good tool to understand if psychedelic, you know, if how psychedelics are inducing uh, plasticity in different parts of the brain, um, and I thought that was uh, a good frame. Rather than making this claim and that claim, they say, okay, well, here's this toolkit to look at this hot topic. And um, there was also just kind of a fun thing. They used this uh, neurosynth, which I just learned about from this paper, and it uses. Um, neuroimaging data to make uh like words like word uh collages of the neuro data so um we can uh, look at some of those in, in a little bit but uh i wanted to start off with jehan because of all the people i know uh dr jehan marcus talks to me the most about different brain regions receptors in brains their uh interactions so uh jehan um could you just give us a, a little more detail on, on what they're doing here? Yeah, sure. So uh, the researchers are taking this uh, approach with trying to visualize what's happening in the brain. They're using two techniques. They're using EEG, uh, electroencephalography. Uh, and basically, this is a method to record electrical activity of the brain. Um, it's recorded in hertz sometimes. You've heard of alpha waves, maybe theta waves, um, things like that. So it's sort of the broadcast signal of the brain um, and kind of just kind of listening to some of the echoes that are, you know, going on inside there. And then functional magnetic resonance imaging or fMRI looks at uh, hematological changes or like changes in blood flow. And so you can start to say like, okay, 
brainwaves associated with things like meditation and relaxing. Like uh, one of the things I talk about is the power of the alpha wave, I believe, in the paper. And that has to do with like, you know, after you've completed a task and you're like, oh, I feel good. You know, like that, that almost like that post euphoric feeling checking something off of your to do list. And you're like, ah, oh, that's nice. You know, that's, that's some alpha wave activity changing right there. Um, and so they combined fMRI and EEG to kind of simultaneously look at characterization of like, um, these regions of the brain. And one of the main things they kind of talk about here is this transmodal regions. Um, and these are like these little regions that, uh, you know, sit at the confluence of different information streams. They play roles in like cognition and they basically receive and integrate information. Um, and then they're connecting, integrating, and, and, among like competing information and some of the stuff I read about why they're looking at these things. It's like we have a certain amount of brain activity and we can use it for movement or we can use it for thinking like, um, and animals that don't have good transmodal regions or highly adapted ones. Um, they can't stop doing certain behaviors. Like they will constantly, go after something that visually stimulates them to go after prey, and they can't unlearn not to do that. So it's kind of like misguided behavior. So our, our, if you want to know what these regions in the brain they're talking about in this paper do, put on like a pair of goggles that changes your perception, like the drunk goggles, and we're able to like adjust to that. Those are our transmodal regions in our brains that are helping to like organize um, these structures. So mammals have it, humans have it, it helps us move while we can also make judgments about things. So um, next time you're running down the street judging someone, that's probably a lot of activity going on in the transmodal association cortex, or I think they called it like the transmodal pole in um, this area. Lots of activity in the cortex, which again, um, visual integration happens there. You know, we don't really see with our eyes. We see with our brain and, and the activity that's being translated there. And so um, there's lots of serotonin receptors in the cortex, you know, type one. And then there's the type 2A among other ones that are there just waiting for compounds like DMT to come along. So uh, <laughs> really, you know, this is um, looking at, you know, trying to create something that's reproducible about what is the sign of a hallucinogenic brain? What is that like kind of predictable signature and change of activity? And I think that's what they were going for here by incorporating both looking at electrical activity of the brain, these brain waves, as well as looking at where is blood going in the brain to turn on and off different regions and looking at that complexity and how you know, visual processing has changed. Um, and, and is DMT enhancing visual perception and imagery or how is it altering it? I don't know if they came up with that. Um, but uh, so that that is, um, you know, what I got out of the paper was, again, they're using these two techniques that they've melded together to develop a way of looking at reproducibility in the neuroimaging of um, a DMT'd brain. Definitely. And uh, so I have um, I have a question uh, for Jackie. Having 
you know, you're, you're working actively in this space. You're developing uh, psychedelic compounds for therapeutic purposes. Uh, what do you think about this kind of tool? Is this, I mean, when you saw this, you're thinking, oh, I want to use that tool or is it um, just, acad- is it all just academic at this point? Um, do, do you see utility for, for industry with something like this? It's really what I'm asking. As a scientist at heart, I always see utility in some way. Um, but I do think that when I see it with sort of my business hat on, no, it's still fairly academic for me. Mm. Um, I also work with groups that do other uh, fMRI work, but I, I've also heard from some that think that there's still limitations there, that that doesn't really have sort of the full robust type of information that I think everybody wants from this type of work. Mm. Um, it's it's also tough when I think you said it was what, 20? Yeah, there's 20, 20 people. And so it's tough when and this is maybe my philosophical hat now is I'm switching personalities on you suddenly <laughs> is I, it, it's very difficult, I think, to relate how different, different brains will react to different psychedelics and how different people might have different subjective effects. And I, I know that it, it would be great if everything kind of looked the same and we could come up with one picture for every like with in this case DMT, maybe psilocybin, and we might be able to come up with a good overview of maybe what parts overlap, maybe what don't. Um, but I, I just don't know that it's there yet for the use of really being able to say, here's the clear biological outcome that will happen because of this imaging that we've done. Yeah. Um, and I thought it was interesting that they really tied a lot of it back to 5-HT2A. Like when you really look through the discussion, I... I don't know if you've seen some of the Twitter wars that have happened a little bit between Brian Roth and Robin Carhart Harris over and even um, David Olson because of just the, the argument of whether or not you need hallucinations. Do you not? Is it 5-HT2A? Is it not? And just sort of those arguments. And I'm sure Dr. Nichols knows all about these things even better than I do. But it's I, I did notice in the discussion he was really harping on the necessity of activity at 5-HT2A and really needing to trigger that receptor. Um, He even made the comparison of how DMT as a classic psychedelic differs from something like MDMA, which is often categorized as a psychedelic based on that activity. Um, So I just, I thought that was interesting. He was really definitely, the whole team was tying it back to that receptor pretty heavily. Um, And then I'll I'll let someone else talk too, but that would be my, my perspective. So, Dr. Nichols, what do you what do you what do you think about it? Well, that methodology is above my pay grade, but um, <laughs> I, I wade through it. Well, Jackie is not going to do these studies because you need access to high-powered computation. You need the instrumentation. You need somebody that can interpret. There's special software. Um, the fact that this transmodal association cortex bowl it's a higher art. It's not actually anatomical. There's a whole group of of structures that relate to it, but it's a hierarchical control system. So like the mono, uh, the sensory information, hearing and touch and so forth is at the bottom. It's just sensory. And then this transmodal uh, sensory cortex pole at the top is what integrates it all, puts it all together. The thing, um, and then uh, Gideon Knudsen has published an an, an atlas showing a three-dimensional uh, densities of the 5-HT2A receptors. And so they correlated their results with high expression of 5-HT2A receptors. 
Um, the thing that um, I keep seeing in here, and of course, Robin Carhart Harris is also one of the co-authors, is the idea that if you think about the way your brain normally works, you have these local networks or hubs in the amygdala and hippocampus, and I don't know how many there are, there are a lot of them. And normally they're segregated from each other, but highly integrated within that hub. So if you think about like a, a country or a state, you have maybe little villages all over the place. And in the villages, everybody knows everybody and talks to everybody, but maybe 50 or 100 miles away, they don't talk so much. So the brain is kind of like that. You have these local uh, networks that are functioning that, you know, just doing their business, doing sensory processing or whatever. And uh, they don't really have to talk to other parts of the brain. So what happens is this when you uh, take a psychedelic, it destroys the structural integrity of those networks and they expand outward and start connecting with other areas. So you have this expansion of what they call global uh, connectivity, uh, global network connectivity. So you actually start bringing in uh, other areas of the brain. It's like the old idea that psychedelics were mind expansion, mind expanding drugs. They're actually like brain expanding. They, you know, it would be like, I guess if you had a computer that had uh, 100 kilobytes of RAM versus a computer that had 100 megabytes of RAM, you know, you can do so much more with 100 megabytes of RAM. So when the studies they did earlier with LSD, they showed that the network in the visual cortex in the back expanded outward toward the front and side. So there were more, there was more neuronal activity involved in visual processing, which kind of fits with the visual uh, illusions and things you see. So the psychedelics seem to increase the global connectivity. Robin Card Harris has called it increased entropy. But basically, um, and the, the advantage of using DMT is it's so short acting. If you want to study a, a change that a psychedelic produces, well, then you give psilocybin. When do you measure? And you know, when do you put them in the scanner to check? You use LSD. When do you put them in the scanner to check? With DMT, it's very fast. They see within the first couple minutes. So they can see these changes occur very rapidly. So they're using it as a model for all the other psychedelics, basically, that act at the serotonin 2A receptors. But the idea of breaking down structural integrity of local networks and expanding out so that everything is connecting, you have global connectivity is really, the, I think, the takeaway message here more than anything. Yeah, definitely. There's... Um... You know, and I, I encourage reader or excuse me, listeners to take a look at the paper. There's a lot of, uh, as Jayhan and Dr. Nichols were mentioning, discussion of the different brain regions that are increased co connectivity or decreased, and um, so so there's plenty of details on that. Um, that is just fascinating. But I think what we're all kind of saying here is it's still being uh, teased apart. Back to what Jackie was saying, it's. Um, not perfectly correlated between this academic paper and the experience that people have. And that reminds me of uh, two tidbits that I wanted to share on this. So I actually um, saw a uh, fireside chat live with Dr. Carhart Harris and Hamilton Morris um, just a couple days ago here in San Francisco. And um, there were two things that they were talking about. One was exactly what Jackie's saying. This was Hamilton Morris was saying it more that the experience that people have and then trying to connect that one-to-one -to, -one to neurobiology or to neuropharmacology, um, the one-to-one -one connection from an individual experience and then 
the, you know, receptor level action or the brainwave level action is uh, obviously we're seeing the huge complexity in this paper, but I think they were really kind of postulating what it's worth or if it will arrive at a meaningful conclusion. Um, and I, I don't know if it will or it won't. Um, these people are obviously putting a lot of effort into trying to bring it to a meaningful conclusion. Um, mm -hmm. And the other thing I thought was interesting um, is that Carhart Harris was talking about this uh, kind of spectrum, this verbal spectrum that some people say the mind uh, and some people say like the psychedelics are altering the mind. And some people say the psychedelics are altering the soul. So for him, mind was a little too, um, like a little too rigid, a little too uh, rigidly focused on the brain, a little too closed. Soul was a little too open and like near like the religious side. So he prefers this term psyche. So what they're studying here uh, is the psyche. So um, I thought that, that was like one of my most interesting takeaways. Um, from the talk uh i do uh dr nichols i want to ask you too um because you've been watching this field develop uh over time is this uh is this where you thought uh it would be going like i guess what i'm saying is it uh you know 20 years ago or 30 years ago did you think it would be people getting dmt uh injected into their vein in the fmri scanner uh, or is it, so is, is it normal in hindsight? Is it shocking in hindsight? No, I, I mean, even 10 years ago, not even when I, I started 1969, but even 10 years ago, I, I couldn't imagine. Um, I had a dream when I was a graduate student that I was in this auditorium watching some kind of a demonstration. And this person was sitting under something that was sitting on their head and they were saying it was a magnetoencephalograph. And I had no clue what that was. And of course, nobody was doing it back then. And now some of the studies have come out showing magnetoencephalography, which shows a real-time movement, whereas EEG is sort of surface electrodes and, and isn't as good as mm. magnetoencephalography. But I don't think you can put somebody into a, in a, in a magnetoencephalography apparatus with EEG electrodes on, which would probably be better. But, um, you know, what I see is it's a, it's a work in progress where we're trying to understand consciousness. Mm. You know, like alpha waves are decreased after DMT. What is the consequence of that? What well, correlates with other things? And you need really powerful software to find correlations between changes in activity in one area of the brain and changes in activity in another area of the brain. And they're doing a little bit of that, but I think we're still way, way a ways off. We need even more powerful software and probably even better computers because these guys are probably using a local computer cluster at the Imperial College or something like that. You really need to you need to get big time computing power. That's why I said this this kind of work is kind of above my pay grade. I think it's remarkable and amazing. But trying to understand who we are and why we are here and why, you know, how can what we're talking about these subjects and it's pretty uh ephemeral maybe. Mm. But um but to understand what consciousness is. And I think they're, they're making the best attempts they can because when you want to study a physiological phenomena, you use a drug that perturbs the phenomena. So if you want to know what beta receptors in the heart do, you give someone a beta one receptor agonist or antagonist and the heart goes, rate goes up, rate goes down. You want to study consciousness. The best way to do it is by modifying consciousness. And right now, some of the best tools for doing that are psychedelics. 
obviously in earlier years, you know, they use anesthetics or nitrous oxide, things like that. But uh, these are just powerful tools that modify consciousness. And I think if you, you have a placebo point and a drug point, if you've got the right tools, you can figure out and, and uh, dissect that and, and get a better understanding. But they're not, they're not there yet. This is in some, re, re, some aspects, even though they're using fMRI and EEG both, it's come. It's coming to the same conclusion as a lot of the other studies that were just using fMRI, showing that yeah, okay, you have this global increase in connectivity, you have a disintegration of local network hubs and integration in the whole brain. And I've got a picture that was in a paper that was published by Pierre et al. some years ago, and they show you these hubs as a, a brain, a, a illustrated brain, and placebo. And you see a couple of lines where these things are talking to each other, and then the brain under psilocybin, and it's just full of these. Yeah, I've seen connections. That. Yeah, yeah. That, that's that's kind of, and I use that when I teach to say, what does this mean? This is sort of what's happening, mm-hmm. and it really is like mind expansion. I think it's it's recruiting areas for computation that normally aren't there. You know, you have memories stored in hippocampus or fears in amygdala. And normally you suppress all these things so you, you don't need to survive in everyday life. You know, there are signals that are below the threshold of detection. And the psychedelics amplify those and bring them out. So now you're flooded with memories and imagination and ideas and things. If, if you've taken a psychedelic, surely nobody in this podcast has taken a psychedelic before. But if you've taken... Wouldn't dream of it. <laughs> but if you've taken a psychedelic, you know... If a thought comes, you can't hold on to it. Thoughts will go so fast, they're just running through your mind most of the time. You just, it's, it's like your brain is really, you know, overclocked or something, to use the computer terminology. I was trying to make that, uh, kind of like make that connection with the, um, with the sensory overload at the beginning of the pod. Um, Jackie, I don't know. It seems like you're about to say something. Uh, were you gonna, I have a kind of a burning question for you, but were you going to say something? Oh, I mean... Sure, you can ask me the question, but I was just going to mention, because he keeps talking about, obviously, the, the expansion. Um, there is a line right in the discussion where he says the 5-HT2A receptor has played some causal role in the expansion of the human cortex. So they do try to tie a very strong correlation between that receptor, which I just find so interesting when you're talking about something like DMT, which has potent activity at other serotonin receptors. And so it's, and there are other things out there that we know of that are more potent at 2A, even than DMT. So I'm always just interested to see sort of how they try to tie that pharmacology back to the statements or what they're seeing in fMRI or maybe EEG. But, you know, he's absolutely right from a computing power perspective. It's pretty intense. So. Yeah, to your to your point, Jackie, I thought that was a great thing that they talked about was why did this exist evolutionarily? And it was probably to balance brain activity during movement. And like it began being used for other things other than us just like catching insects or mice to eat. <laughs> I'm speaking about our ancestors, not my, what I'm doing for lunch today. But <laughs> yeah, but I thought that's I think it's always great when they try and fit it in a larger context. So I would I would say that was a really cool part of getting through to the discussion section of this paper. I, I was all caught up in the uh, in the multicolored pictures of the brains. Um, Those are fun yeah, too. Um, so uh, to my question, Jackie, was um, so uh, you work on uh, compounds that harness the neuroplasticity effects of um, psychedelic compounds for reasons other than 
tripping, right? Um, would this, so let's just imagine you can just use this tool tomorrow. It's just like you get the call and they're like, hey, Jackie, come use this thing for a week. What, um, would this, uh, how, how would you apply that? Would, I guess I'm asking, like, this is a hot topic, right? Of the, yeah. uh, do you need the trip to have the therapeutic effect or is inducing neuroplasticity enough? And just like it's a hot topic, it's hotly debated. Is, would, yeah. is, would a tool like this help, um, you know, end the debate or no? I would love to see sort of that direct, if I had suddenly had all of the money and computing power in the world, uh, to see the direct comparison between, so some of our compounds that we work on, mm. they still seem to hit 2A in some way, but we just don't really understand what the difference is. They're not an antagonist, but they also don't cause head twitches in mice. And so it's really trying to understand, but still have some of the positive behavioral outcomes mm. that you see in other ways. And they're very similar atomically to psilocytin, psilocybin, DMT, these tryptamines. So, and I know now they've done this work with DMT. They've obviously done some with psilocybin, but yeah, I would love to see a head-to-head comparison just because the main target that we often look at for us is 2A. And we know yeah. our, we know they're hitting 2A in some way. Like we've done functional studies actually at UNC and PDSP, they've done them. And same with NIDA, they've done some of that work for us. And they just don't seem to be having some of the, what you'd expect in animals, but then from a receptor perspective, you know, you're seeing certain things. So if they're really going to make that strong of a, a correlation in the paper, yes, if I had it tomorrow, I would love to make a comparison similar with uh, two bromo LSD versus LSD or some of those types of, of questions that I think are still lingering. Absolutely. Um, yeah, that's kind of where my mind went on this. Uh, was it my mind or my soul? Uh, something inside me, your psyche, your my psyche. psyche, or, uh, uh, or was it my consciousness? Um, I'm not wow. sure some days I'm, I don't know. There's, there's a lot going on. Uh, but yeah, that's kind of where my, um, whatever's inside me went when I read this was, yeah, this is cool. And it was exactly like you were saying, Jackie, there's, you know, certain emphasis, on 2a and the 2a density and it's like okay well immediately i'm wondering about what else can we do with this there's obviously this whole other realm of compounds and i'm super interested in groups that are uh trying to tease apart the intricacies of the um you know polyreceptor action that we know is happening in a lot of cases but isn't being tracked or focused on um because there isn't a necessity because there's like momentum in other parts of the industry and medicalization. So it's, um, you know, it's a lot going on. So anyways, uh, we are running out of HLI time. So I, uh, just want to give everyone a chance to, uh, share a closing thought or anything you'd like. We've talked about a lot of stuff today, quotes from, um, influential and famous people about psychedelics. We've talked about the history of the field and uh, the Renaissance or the third wave and and how it got started. We've talked about this cutting edge research and some of the uh, uh, pros and cons on it. So uh, does anyone have uh, things you'd like to share before we close? I would like to say the show continues to promote the quality of human conscious experience. (laughs) Yeah, that's not bad. (laughs) feel so on the spot. I, I don't <laughs> know what the close is supposed to be. Other than I would like to say that 
as a group of, you know, a bunch of PhDs, I do always appreciate once I'm, we're in a room talking about very scientific topics and really intense things that you have to work a long time to even understand some of it, but at the same time, being able to really bring it back and talk about the human condition and mm. evolution in the sense of eating bugs at some point in our history and just really remembering <laughs> and checking our ego a little bit as sometimes doesn't happen in science. So I can, I always appreciate that. It is kind of nice to have a scientific field that gets so human. And that goes back to the the question you asked me earlier, Dr. Nichols, why don't you join my lab? I'll be honest <laughs> with you, in Indiana in the year 2011, I did not see studying psychoactives as a option. Honestly, when I was telling you, uh, my friends at Purdue uh, were, oh, I want to join the Nichols lab. I want to join the Nichols lab. And I was like, Cool. That's great. Go do that. Um, I'm going to study something rigid and conformed because that's what I thought I needed to do. You know, so uh, I I very much uh, agree with you, Jackie. Um, and I actually had a a question. Maybe this is a nice closer for the show uh, for you, Doctor Nichols. Um, what is your uh, your maybe vision or your hope for for where it all goes. You've been part of it and so influential for a long time. Um, what do you what do you see next in the field, or what do you what do you hope will what do you hope will happen? I was asked that very question probably ten or fifteen years ago by a woman. Where do you see this field? And of course, I couldn't see what's happening now. <laughs> and I said, Well, someday, probably long after I'm dead, uh, you'll be having a midlife crisis, and you'll, your primary care physician will send you down the corner to see a shaman slash psychiatrist. He'll give you a session with a psychedelic, and you'll get a new perspective on your life. And she says, oh, my God, you think you'll be dead by then? I said, probably. But I said, as long as the vector is pointing in the right direction, that will be okay. And I would say sort of the same thing now. Um, if we get these out into the clinic, and they really do cure depression and anxiety and eating disorders and various addictions, if they really turn out to be uh, kind of, uh, I won't call them the philosopher's stone, but it looks like they can do a lot of things that we can't do. That'll be, that, that'll be the goal. I mean, if we could come back and do this in 10 years and look back, I think the things that we would see would be really dramatically different. Getting these things scaled, you know, NDMA has just gone through the third phase three, a pivotal trial that'll probably be approved next year for PTSD you know, and psilocybin probably, you know, a year or two after that. I mean, if these things really work this way, we're going to be treating illnesses, especially mental disorders that we couldn't treat before. But I think in the process, when we see more studies like this, we're going to learn a whole lot more about how the brain generates mind or how the brain generates psyche or whatever you want to call it. And it's interesting because, you know, the serotonin-2A receptors are some evolutionarily are some of the oldest receptors out there. Single-celled organisms like paramecium have 5-HT2 receptors. So it was something that worked, and it worked, and so evolution kept it up to our point. And so it works a lot better in us probably than it does in paramecium. Well, thank you so much, everyone. I will um, accept that. Uh, I will accept that challenge, Dr. Nichols. I will see you on 421 2033 we will do an update here on hli so uh cheers to um uh, all your great work and to longevity and thank you listeners uh for joining us and we'll see you on the next show